everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up! And call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular's single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. The weather is getting warmer and it's time to swap my winter layers for fun, vibrant, and cool clothing with so many fun things happening this spring like Mother's Day and the Wind Down Tour. It's hard to find great looking clothes that fit you just right. That's why I love JCPenney. JCPenney has so many stylish and comfortable options for so many different body types. I've been blown away by their selection and everything hugs my body in all the right spots. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with style that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her, each in women's petite and plus sizes. Here, spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count. Hello, and welcome to the Psychology Podcast with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Each episode will feature a new guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Hopefully, we'll also provide a glimpse into human possibility. Thanks for listening and enjoy the podcast. Today is my great pleasure to have Kelly Leonard and Ann Libra on the show. Kelly has worked at the Second City for nearly three decades in various creative and leadership positions. He's produced shows with such notable talent as Tina Fey and Stephen Colbert. His latest book is Yes and How Improvisation Reverses No But Thinking and Improves Creativity and Collaboration. Lessons from the Second City. Anne Libra has worked with the Second City since 1986 and served as Executive Artistic Director of the Second City Training Centers and Education Programs for eight years. She's also Director of Comedy Studies at Columbia College, Chicago. Her book, The Second City Almanac of Improvisation, is published by Northwestern University Press. Hey, guys. Hello. Hi, Scott. How many mistakes did I make in that bio? I don't think you made any mistakes. I must have spent all day practicing that bio and preparing (laughs) it. (laughs) You crafted it well. Thank you. Thank you. Well, even if I didn't make a mistake, your point would be that that's okay, right? Totally. In improvisation, we talk about uh, seeing all obstacles as gifts and making mistakes work for you. Basically, the idea there is that we have a very uh, odd relationship to failure in our business world and in our culture because we fail all the time. And improvisation is an incredible art form that actually not only allows for failure, but finds ways to use failure. 
quite literally embraces failure. Well, I'm loving that. So let's just start at the fundamentals. Yes. And what is that exercise? And maybe we should just like do it right now. Like just like illustrate to the audience what it is. We are doing it. Oh, (laughs) yay. Yeah, we succeeded. I mean, the idea behind yes and is that you get somewhere faster if whenever someone says something or offers something, you don't just agree that it's true, but you also build on it. So, for example, Scott, give me an imaginary superhero. Purple Popsicle Man. Yes. Purple Popsicle Man has a giant purple popsicle with which he destroys his evil villain nemesis, Green Ice Cream Cone Man. And they all live in a magical world near Mars, but not on Mars. It's near Mars. Until one day it rained down on them and they all dissipated and melted away. Wait, no, wait, wait, that that wasn't good, right? That was like, yes, ending. Wait, can you yes, end something negative? Sure. Sure. Oh, okay. You can also use yes, and for evil. Okay, good, good. So that was yes, end. And I just yes, ended with two of the, like, literally the, like, inventors, like, the geniuses of yes, end. Uh, You guys wouldn't say that because you're humble people, but I feel honored to have done that with you guys just now. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the thing about yes and, it's a bit of a bumper sticker at this point because, you know, improv now is a little bit more in the mainstream than it used to be. But, and the central tenet is still true, which is so much in life, and we see this in business, we see this in education, people lead with no. And they do this for a lot of reasons, mostly because they're working out of fear or they want to control or both those things are true. And as Anne sort of pointed out, it's not enough just to say yes when you yes and you explore and heighten. That's a much more positive great place to be. And I talk to a lot of business groups in my gig, and there's a lot of resistance from usually some like haughty guy in the back of the auditorium who claims that if if he were going to yes and all the time, he'd never get any work done. And, you know, that guy is just a nightmare, which we just know to be true. But the reality is when you're in a brainstorm or a meeting, you're not yes anding for like seven hours. You're yes anding for like 10 or 15 minutes just so everyone can be heard so everyone can participate. There is plenty of room for editing and parsing and killing off bad ideas in our work. Right, but the the difficulty is if you don't yes and, then you kill off the idea before you've had a chance to build it, explore it in a heightened and discover what it could be. Yeah. You know, and, and we do this all the time, right? Somebody starts an idea and immediately it's shut down. Well, if you yes and it and take it to the next step, it may still be a bad idea. You may decide not to do it but you have discovered what about the idea is really true and taken it to its next natural conclusion. So it's almost like indistinguishable from the creative process. Oh, it's, it, it is the creative it, process. It is the creative that process. Is, I mean, that's exactly what I'm talking about when I talk about creativity as well. But I don't use yeah. the word improv. Yeah. No, no, no. It, well, it, because it, I mean, it's human behavior, right? This is how humans behave. And what the founders of Second City and, and the founders of this pedagogy realized quite intently is that people don't normally well in groups, wouldn't it be smart to have some rules of the road so that they can more effectively create together? Because that's not a natural act. And there's a lot, we were just talking to some behavioral scientists this week who sort of claimed that their science shows that the best work gets done by individuals. And I'm like, now we got to look at that science because I seem to recall that the Beatles were really good, and I don't think any of those solo albums were as good as 
you know, the Beatles albums and, oh, how about a symphony? And immediately you say, like, oh, you have a good point. So, I mean, again, we're never in this alone. Even if we're, you know, working on something by ourselves, let's say we're a playwright, the play doesn't end with a single writer in a room. There was likely an editor and there was most certainly going to be a director and there's going to be actors and there's going to be sets and there's going to be audiences and all those things affect the creative success. And so when you can be oriented towards looking at this sort of thing holistically, rather than sort of minutely or in an isolated way, you're going to unlock things that are bigger and better than had you just been alone. Yeah. And in your book, you talk a lot about co-creation as something that happens through improv and this idea, you can't have co-creation with one person. That doesn't even make any sense. (laughs) I think part of what's interesting about that is it's not to say that creating by yourself, it's bad, No, but that co-creation is creating something that you wouldn't create on your own. Right. And you work together. The joy of that is that there's something, you know, Scott, you're going to create something by yourself. I'm going to create something by myself. But when we work together, we create a third thing that is different. It's, you know, it's like the Beatles. It's different from what it would be if either of us did it by ourselves. And I think from a science Mm -hmm. point of view, those unknown variables are very exciting. Mm -hmm. I mean, that that is the thing you're trying to get at is what do we not understand about this thing as individuals? And maybe what do we not understand about something collectively, but through collective creative acts, we discover all kinds of truths. And, And we just know this from working at Second City for so long, I mean, I've had Jeff Richmond, who's married to Tina Fey. He was a director at Second City for many years. And during one sort of ugly process, he left me a note on my desk at night. Said It just said, this is the most inefficient way to create art ever. <laughs> and I, I know what he means. He's not incorrect in some regards. However, we have nearly 60 years of proof that this way of creating, like we do at Second City, which is ensembles of actors, working with other with a director and a musical director and technicians and all that and in front of an audience in front of an audience in collaboration and conversation all with each other has it is the most successful continuously successful theater in the history of theater we have never closed i mean this is the, we do only original work and we have never closed since 1959 wow. except for a brief time when we had a fire <laughs> uh, and that was just a couple of weeks but that doesn't exist in the world a commercial venture that is never closed, that only does original work. So, you know, that you've got to look at that data and say that that shows you something. It certainly does. And I love this idea of this toggle, this, this trade-off between efficiency and trial and error and variability. I like to think of expertise as being characterized by efficiency, but creativity seems to be characterized by variability. I think one of the primary elements is this idea of discovery mm-hmm. that expertise often suggests that we know in advance what the outcome is going to be. And, right. you know, right. I already know what this is. I'm going to explain to you what it is. I might go find some research that backs up what I already know that I know. And as opposed to in this creative process and particularly in an improvisational process, we talk about the idea of discovery that, I don't know what's going to happen. Anything can happen. And what we're going to find is going to be a surprise. We're going to know it. We're going to learn from it in a completely different way. So how does Um, practice 
like how can you practice being good at improv when it's oh. always different every time? Well, well but it's not. <laughs> but you're not. I asked a leading question because I know that you're gonna. You yeah, seventy straight. You're not, the reason that you can practice, you practice making discoveries. You don't practice what the discovery is. And I always use the equation to you know jazz or basketball. I mean, you know, you shoot those free throws over and over and over again, and you do those running exercises with your teammates over and over and over again, so that when you are playing in the game and you are looking to be artful, that you don't have to think about it, that you move to the right space, that you can read each other. So really great improvisers are so steeped in practice. They don't start that way. I mean, a lot of people sort of say to me, why do you think people get into improvisation? I say it's a lot of really talented people who are too lazy to memorize scripts. <laughs> so they're going into traditional theater. But then when they get into improvisation, they love it so much, that side of them that wants to excel, you know, kicks into gear and suddenly they're extremely unlazy. They are deep in practice in their craft uh, so that it can appear effortless when they're doing it. Because honestly, and, and the reason this, this you know, relates to everyone is because we improvise every day. We are not handed a script in life. You're not handed a script when you wake up in the morning, usually not at work, certainly not when you're raising your kids. And so improvisation becomes this, uh, my friend Heather Caruso has a way she phrases it, which is we become practice, practiced in being unpracticed. So it is skills building to deal with the unknown. And that can be as simple as what we've talked about with, with a yes and exercise. And it can be as difficult as building up your resilience in order to thrive from failures, which takes a little while. Right. Yeah. It's not natural to embrace mistakes, right? Mm -hmm. It's natural to beat ourselves up for mistakes. So the idea that a mistake is an opportunity and not an opportunity for blame it requires practice. It requires accepting the mistake and building on it and then realizing that it wasn't a failure. It was an opportunity. So we literally have, you know, basic improv games, which are about pushing people to make mistakes, to behave mistakenly, which they find very difficult because it's not a natural act. Do, right. And so it's like, nope, do it again. Do it again. Mistake, mistake, mistake. Mm -hmm. And then there's exercises to then pivot off of that. Because this is not the way we're wired. We are, as you know very well, we're not wired to create. To I heard that from someone. <laughs> Some brilliant author used that phrase. Uh, you might know him too. So we have to do a ton of unlearning to get back to that sort of more basic human stuff that will allow us to create in the moment. Hold on. I want to clarify that. So you said we're not wired to create? I, well, I think we are. I think we become, our wires get crossed up as we go to things blocked, like school. Like blocked. Or, uh, or blocked, you know, corroded, because we are then given lots of rules and we're told that there's one way to do something. And then we're told that, oh, people who look like us need to behave this way. And those people who look different than you, well, they behave differently. And, and all this junk that, unfortunately, as you get older, just gets more deeply cemented. So by the time that Second City gets hired to go into a corporate workshop with these sort of high-functioning 40 to you know 50-year-old salesmen, they are just sort of riddled with anxiety over the idea that maybe there's a different way to behave that might have success for them. And then when they experience it, because our learning is highly experiential, when they experience it, it is utterly transforming. 
because they just know. They're like, you're right. I don't listen. <laughs> or that's right. I don't listen. And, my, you know, well, my wife is right. <laughs> yeah, right. My wife is right. You hear that all the time. You hear that all the time. Like, oh, thank God. Actually, this is what you hear. Thank God my wife isn't here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is really profound because, you know, the brain wants to wire itself early in development in a fashion that makes us exploratory. And so we're actually going against the grain by taking that out of us, you know? So we have to kind of, it's really a shame. It's kind of a tragedy how our, especially education system kind of crushes that. Yeah, well, isn't it interesting? I mean, well, I think one of the things about the improvisational exercises is that what they're really designed to do is recreate recognizable human behavior. So natural behaviors. And it's that we get away from practicing the things that are natural to us and that what a lot of these improvisational exercises do is they literally let us go back and practice the thing that was natural to us as a behavior, as a child, or but with more control than a child, shall we say. So this might be the apt moment to mention that all of this stuff comes out of children's games. Yeah, right? Because in like the 50s, right? Even earlier. Oh, yeah. earlier, 1920s. Neva Boyd worked in the Hull House movement, and she brought on a young woman named, by the name of Viola Spolin who is the mother of Paul Sills, who founded the Second City. And Viola created many of these improvisational games, which are still played today, that she used when she was dealing with immigrant children, and she was trying to find ways to better assimilate them. So many of the games are in gibberish, or they're silent because these kids didn't all share language. But what they all do is get groups of people together to interact positively, that they enhance empathy. They concentrate on being others-focused. They involve listening skills. So it's not, I mean, you know, just listening to that, you know, everyone can look at that and go, oh, wait a sec, of course that's what human beings need because we don't do those things naturally as we get older. And it gets drummed out of us, but there's other sort of realities for why we don't because we don't have as many places to play as we get older. And, And that becomes just such an important part of the human condition that, you know, if you are in a place of not playing. Well, uh, and I'll say, they're not playing with other people. You know, yeah. we get to play with a machine. And again, there's room for all of that. And that's play, right? And that's also improvising. And that's true. And that's real. And I think one of the things, this certainly happens in school. And I imagine that's what leads it to the business world. But there is so little truth telling in corporate America that it has clogged up all the creative channels. And when we look at the companies that are, innovative, the Virgin Airlines or the Southwest Airlines or, you know, what what have you, they are playful. They are funny. They are improvising. Well, you know, what's interesting is, is I think this is a theory that rather than a, than a thing, but that, you know, the enemy to play is the need to control. Right. The minute we, the minute we start to worry about control, we start to worry about what's going to happen. And you see it when a business scales itself, right? Yeah. It goes from something Groupon would maybe be a perfect example of a business that started really playful. Mm-hmm. Not just co- comedy, but just a level of play. And then as they got bigger, they're like, oh, nope, we have to be careful in case it gets out of control. Mm-hmm. And then at that moment, we start to stifle all the things, all the play all the things that actually allowed us to get creative in the first place. So do you find that play can help people who suffer from like generalized anxiety disorder or OCD 
or like a lot of control issues? Well, yeah, indeed. What's interesting is that what it lets them do is play, specifically the games that we use in improvisation, allow you to play in a way that is safe. Hmm. So you can take risks within a very simple, safe construct and recognize that the thing that you're afraid of, that you're trying to control, you're trying to create control to stop it from happening is actually not a big deal at all. And one of our friends who was on the Second City main stage for many years and is now a writer at Tarrant Live, she suffers from significant, significant social anxiety disorder. And in conversation with her, I mean, I was struck because my first reaction when I was talking to her about this was like, why would you ever become an actor you know, in front of all these people, and, and even more so, why would you become an improvisational actor who's going on stage with no script? And she said what, what I needed to understand was that when she was improvising, that was the one place she didn't feel anxious because she could not worry or think about what came before. She could not worry or think about what came after. She had to stay mindfully in the present, and the person who was apart from her, her scene partner across from her, was their sole job was to save her. So the ensemble's job, and that, that is the job of every ensemble, is to save everyone else. Right. And, and that's that safe place, right? The idea yeah. that everybody in the room is there. You know, I often talk about ensemble as a practice, that your job as a member of the ensemble is to take care of everyone else in the ensemble. It's not necessarily a specific group of special people who have a special relationship like the Beatles. It's really you and I, when we come into interaction with each other, we are ensemble. And that my job as an improviser with you is to make sure that your mistakes are validated and I'm taking care of you. So there's no, no need to fear because my job is to have your back. Well, if only everyone in society got that, the importance of treating the world as improv. <laughs> yes. yes, yes. Then the world would be a safe space. <laughs> well, yeah, or a safer. safer. Yeah, absolutely. Well, how does authenticity relate to improv? Hmm. You know... That's such a tricky word. I mean, I think on a content level, when Anne talked about improvisation as a way to find recognizable human behavior, that would be authentic. So the minute some company hires an advertising company to make them more authentic or their brand more authentic, that is the most inauthentic act you could ever do. (laughs) Whoops. Whoops. (laughs) It will not succeed. But there's a state of being authentic is not always attractive. And it's riddled. Speak for yourself, man. (laughs) I I believe that even the most attractive among us have moments when they wake up in the morning that, that, you know, so so authenticity, which is, I think, one of the reasons Second City shows have been so successful Mm -hmm. is because people recognize that they look at and go, oh, my God, this is what everyone's laughing about when they come to a Second City show is shared recognition of something that's true. That's just been said that normally people don't say. Or, or shining a light in an area that we all know to be true, that we don't get to see that often. So, you know, when we're teaching at the training center in the beginning classes, we don't teach comedy. No, we, te- we just teach people to be honestly in the moment with whatever is going on. And what's interesting about that is the minute that you do that, the minute that you create recognizable human behavior, you play these games and you create interactions in the way that humans are, it's funny because it includes, it is because it's authentic, Mm -hmm. right? Because it includes failure, which is also part of that authenticity. 
And that's also what comedy is. Comedy is the connective place between truth, recognition, pain, you know, failure, and a safe space in which to acknowledge those things. I'm trying to visualize the Venn diagram right now. All those <laughs> yeah. things you just said. <laughs> well, you put them all on top and that's, you know, every well, comedy is those things. Comedy is right in the middle of that, in the middle of the Venn diagram? Yeah. Right in the middle. <laughs> and, and, and so close to tragedy. Parts. So close to tragedy. Well, it, and it's not, it is tragedy if it's not safe, right? So you remove the safe space and it's just truth and pain, then it's tragedy or pathos. Well, what's the Mel Brooks quote? Like, if I cut my finger. Okay, tragedy is when I cut my finger. Comedy is when you fall in a hole and die. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, this idea of authenticity as revealing your vulnerable side seems to be something that we don't promote in society as much as we probably should um, and that it you can do with improv. I'm just thinking of like all all these different ways of being authentic. Like, isn't it possible? Because there's so many sides of ourselves, right? There's so many yeah. ways of being. And for instance, someone with social anxiety who doesn't want to be defined as a person with social anxiety might be able to use improv as a way to authentically be more playful. Sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it was funny. So Anne and I were talking the other day. And it is a conversation that Scott we've had before when we've talked about stand-up comedians and improvisers. And as any self-respecting stand-up comedian will tell you, the bulk of them are miserable human beings. Yeah. And improvisers, except for Aisha Alpha. No, I was going to say Aisha is not at all, which is fascinating. Our she's also an friend. improviser. She's also an improviser. <laughs> yeah. Our friend Aisha. Okay. But again, and improvisers tend to be happier and and more well-adjusted. Not all of them. I'm laughing as I'm thinking about this because I know so many. However. One of the things that Anne sort of reminded me of was, well, it's not that the comedians right. don't see the power in it. Well, no, I'd, I was go, I'd go the other way. Yeah. I think that, and this is true for both comedy and for improv, is it's not that, that comedy or improv makes comedians unhappy, because lots of comedians are unhappy. Yeah. It's that comedy and improvisation is a balm to people who are unhappy. It's a what? That a bomb? It's a bomb. B-A-L-M. So that it makes gotcha. you feel that comedy is a way of dealing with your anxiety and dealing with depression and dealing with negative things in your life. And that improvisation does gives you that opportunity. And you have alcohol in there and you have the Holy Trinity. <laughs> yeah, because the prefrontal cortex will get a little reduced <laughs> activation. Right. Uh, it's not too much alcohol. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, that's the problem, isn't uh, it? Yeah, that, 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 it really is. So this idea of pain and being drawn to comedy, you know, it also, I find this very interesting because I'm in the middle of an eight-week mindfulness stress reduction course right now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I am finding it is reducing my levels of anxiety and it's helping me stay in the moment more. Do you find a lot of good improvisers also do mindfulness practice on the side? Well, some do, but it's interesting because I think actually that because improvisation is on its own a mindfulness practice, yeah. even if it's not labeled that way, yeah. what's interesting about it is it's mindfulness that does not require that you sit by yourself in a chair alone. Yeah, It's mindfulness that you take into the world. And one of the things I think we were talking about before, you know, I have a mindfulness practice, I have a meditation practice, but when I was doing yoga and meditation, I would often sort of think, well, and now I leave this and I go into the world and I don't know how to bring this into the world. And what improvisation really is, is a set of guidelines that allow you to be mindful 
mindful with another human being. I love that. So I want to just to think about this logically for a second. On first blush, it may seem that improv is actually at odds with mindfulness because mindfulness, whenever you have a thought that is mind wandering, it's like, must return to the breath, must return to the breath, you know, like danger Will Robinson, I'm mind wandering, danger Will Robinson. Whereas in improv, you want to encourage divergent thinking and you want to, you don't want to ignore it. So maybe, so I said on first blush, but when you peer under the cover and you look deeper at what's going on with improv, improv seems to be a unique state where you simultaneously are mindful while you are bringing to the table your inner self. Yes. yes. So th so this strikes at the heart of what I think is the important next step in the study of this work, which is it is a duality. It is doing both things. And whether we're talking about Danny Kahneman's mm -hmm. work or we're talking about Nick Epley's work, I mean, there are scientists and and psychologists and all kinds of brilliant people who are eschewing this idea of your left brain or your right brain. And like, no, your brain and brain is all those things. And improvisation is a wonderful seesaw between those different aspects of the brain. The idea of where you need to be free to not self-censor, but then you need to be able to shift and rapidly create. Well, and I also want to say this, that so much of mindfulness isn't about, because you know this, it's not about not thinking. That's right. It's not, it's but what awareness, it is. awareness, awareness. It's about awareness of what you're thinking, and it's about not getting tied to thought, tied to a thought as being what's actually happening. So it's not about getting lost in the thought. Same thing as improvisation. I don't want, if I'm improvising with you, my goal is to be in the moment with you and follow what's going on as opposed to getting personally attached to my idea of what it should be. Yeah, but this is what's interesting is that like it seems like mindfulness trains your mental flexibility, attentional control and flexibility mm -hmm. so that you have that tool to which you can use for whatever purpose you want. Whereas mm -hmm. it seems like improv, it's the means and the end. It seems like improv is a means and an end, whereas mindfulness is only a means. Okay. Yeah. I, yeah. Well, and I think one of the dangers is to think of improvisation practices as being that thing that five people get up on stage and do with bright T-shirts. <laughs> right. right. That is, those games can be product. They can be an end. Mm-hmm but they're designed to train you to be in the moment in a process. But and not just be in the moment, be in the moment and co-create. Make yeah. that, yes, right. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. so but that's it is, what we do when we're in the world, right? What, you said when we're actually in the world? Yeah. Wait, that's what we're doing. What's, are we in the world right now? Yes. Uh, yes, we are. Okay. We're improvising. <laughs> <What a, laughs> I suddenly like, got confused. What, where does improv start and everything else ends? And, for you guys, probably there is no boundary, right? In your own personal life, you guys are some of the most fun people like ever to hang out with. I just want to make that. Yeah. Like, <laughs> we had a very good time, didn't we, in Philly? Yes, yes. You guys, I love you guys, and I feel like you don't see such these boundaries uh, that probably like it's not like oh well, the improv session's done. Now we have to go home, you know, <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, we're so we're pretty lucky. I mean, we're lucky in a variety of ways. You know, uh, Ann and I've been married for 20 years. Uh -huh. uh, we kind of grew up together at, at Second City. We've got two kids. You co-created uh, in the most biblical sense. We literally co-created. Um, I, I think I did more of that co-creation. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you, you, were, you, you were the more uh, involved scene part. But one of the things that is kind of a, here's the blessing of Second City. 
because when you start, when you talk, just if we weren't talking about Second City, you would never talk to us because <laughs> improvisation is like, you know, it has no commercial aspect other than what Second City has done with it and a few other new theaters. But even those theaters are like $5 tickets, you know, and, no one, and none of the actors get paid. At Second City, it is an equity theater that charges a decent amount of money to come see the shows, that has a, you know, corporate division, all these sort of applications. So what Ann and I get to do is work in this incredibly rich, fun, and creative art form uh, that is also a thriving commercial business so that we can afford to have a good meal now and again. Uh, but also when I'm- <laughs> Or send our son to college. Or send say. our son to college. And, and then, but when we get booked to go to, you know, lecture or do keynotes or workshops, mm -hmm the expectation isn't that we are going to be dry and serious. The expectation is that we are going to be a bit of fun and be ourselves. And to your point of authenticity, after I wrote the book and I got booked on the speaker circuit, I wrote the first few keynotes that I had to deliver because I felt they're paying me a lot of money. It's called a keynote. I should write it down. And, and while, ideally use keynote as your presentation. <laughs> use keynote right? as my presentation. And I and those were okay. They were fine. The client seemed okay. But I knew it wasn't tapping into the way I knew how to deliver within the experience I'd been given in my time at Second City. And I had actually I was reading Adam Grant's originals where he talks about this need for the mind to procrastinate, especially when you're sort of playing with your ideas of the things you know a lot about. And so I started to do that and I would just sort of beat out, I think I'm going to talk about these five things. The minute I started doing that, I was tearing the roof off of the place. It was exactly what sort of people wanted, which was not a negation of whatever scholarly insight or business examples I have, because I have those at, at my disposal. But at least it was a, it, there was a, conver it was the thing that Ann always mm -hmm. says about the work, which is the work is a conversation with the audience. And people, when they go to these conferences, no one is conversing with them. Everyone is talking at them. They might ask some questions at the end, but everyone's talking at them. And I converse. I demand it inside the whatever 60 minutes I'm given. Well, that's a very different model of education. You know, the, the, yeah. that you're a passive student and you're just listening to this teacher who knows everything. So I just want to say that's a very good point that should probably be applied to lots of sectors of society. Also, you talk about how you liken listening to a muscle. You say listening yeah. is like a muscle. So is this something that you personally, Kelly, have developed? Like, do you think improv has helped you a lot with that? And I see, and by the way, and just like... Yes, and <laughs> she's suppressing just Hi. the worst laughter. Uh, I say in every workshop I lead where we talk about this, that we collectively are terrible listeners, me included. One of the best things for Kelly was writing the book. His staff said, because he would write the book from 8 to 10 in the morning, and they always knew that the best time to bring something to him was at 1010 because he would be such a good listener. Yeah, I was. I, cause, but here's the deal. Living by improv. Because I, I was practicing. I, I was yeah. practicing at least by, by my words and, and, and the actions in the moment. And I think that that tends to be true. So what I recognize with myself, and I do now catch myself in meetings more and more because, I mean, like, I'm loud. I talk a lot and I have a tendency to dominate in meetings. And so... I have really tried in recent years as I've becoming more and more into trying to be more in tune with, with the pedagogy is to catch myself and try to silence myself and to take a back seat and make sure if I see someone who isn't speaking, that I make eye contact with them and try to encourage them to talk if I'm leading the meeting or even if I'm not leading the meeting, 
to sort of lean back as opposed to lean forward, all the various sort of status things. So like, I'm just as bad as everyone else at this. And there's no, it's not like you solve it one day. It, you know, it, it's not like you go to the gym and you lift some weights and you're done. You, you got to keep lifting the weights. You can't stop. <laughs> well, you can, indeed. And, you know, this is the other thing that really is true about improvisation is that the more you do it, the more you discover the value of it. So the more you listen, the more you actively listen, the more you listen to somebody all the way to the end of their sentences and really pay attention and respond to what you hear, not to what you're planning to say. And that takes a long, that's a lot of time. But the more you do it, the more you realize how valuable it is. And that just reinforces it. And that's really what that sort of improvisational practice makes listening a muscle out of. That's so cool. Can you give me some examples of some um, people you've consulted for where you've seen like, like a real change that you can like point to say like, when we went to this company, they were all boring, like unaffable people. <laughs> and then, <laughs> no. Yeah, so yeah. working with GE. Don't mention it, a name, don't mention a name, but I'm saying, can you think of an example? Like, no, I, this is a really fun sort of example. And it's a little bit different, but I think it's cool. Okay. Our friend Mick Napier, who is a, uh, the founder of the Alliance Theater, longtime artistic consultant at Second City. And he led a lot of our early corporate classes. Um, and, Mick was in this leadership workshop, and it was all uh, like 20 major, they're all CEOs, and there was one Indian gentleman who had lived in the United States for years, but he talked with a, a fairly thick accent, and Mick could tell that he was having a little bit of trouble in the beginning sort of moments, and so he made a point of focusing the other people in the class to continually help him this one. He found ways of sort of manipulating environment and uh, to encourage ensemble, encourage among, ensemble. Among the group. And towards the end of the workshop, and it started going great. It was going great. They kind of were in a circle talking. And this guy was like a heavy hitter, real successful guy. He welled up in his eyes and he basically said, I can't even tell you, I always feel at a disadvantage because this isn't my first language. And I know I speak with this, this accent. And I looked around and every one of you supported me. And then all these other people like started welling up and climbing. Mean, There's like these hardened businessmen all had this moment of like, I wanted to help you because I could see how smart you were and you needed to get these ideas out. And it was my job to do that. And I don't want you to feel like you're anything less than the brilliant person you are. And that is like one of those magic moments where you're like, that's as good as it gets. Like if, if, if wow. that... You know, right. you have one of those every year, you're fine because you made major breakthroughs, especially with individuals who are in a place of power who hopefully then can bring that to their business. I, I was talking to Simon Sinek this week, and we had a really interesting conversation around the fact that the problem with so many leaders, mostly because they're not trained to be leaders, right? So you take someone who's really good at their job, and then you're like, you are so good at your job, we're going to make you a leader, which then means you can't do your job anymore. It, it, you know, which is a paradox, but really great leaders then know how to shift their mastery to a new place, which is to unlock the leadership and brilliance of others. Uh, and the minute that you realize that when you move to that leadership position is no longer your job to do the job, it is your job to get everyone else to do the job and do it well, that is a place where you can really thrive. And there are certain other people who aren't good at that. And guess what? They shouldn't be those kinds of leaders. <laughs> They should just go back to doing their very, very good job. Mm -hmm. Does this relate at all to your idea of principle of improv being follow the follower? 
right? yeah. Well, I, I feel like it's related, right? Yeah. It's 100%. You know, the idea that when you're leading through your own brain, <laughs> it's you're, you're not co-creating, right? You are, ma- I, oh, I have an idea. I'm going to make this thing happen. And then everybody's job is to follow me. The minute that you do this thing of follow the follower, which is very scary, when we do it as an exercise, mm-hmm. you know, you have two people uh, doing a mirror exercise of each other, and you say, no one leads, everyone follows. And immediately everyone in the room says, but then nothing will happen. I said, no, just follow the follower. Follow the person that you see what happens if you assume that they're leading. And when that happens, something really magical shows up, which is that something is already happening. We don't have to push it. We don't have to make it happen. And then, and everyone's involved. It is not the win of this magical leader who is doing it all by themselves. It is the win of the entire group. And from a management and business context, this is simply the exercise itself is a physical manifestation of Peter Drucker's theories. You know, that, that the hierarchy in business no longer works and it really never worked. But the idea of flat organizational structures, of knowledge workers, stuff that was, you know, taking root in the beginning part of the 20th century, that's where it's tied to. So it's, there's a very practical application with regard to productivity and leadership and building future mm-hmm. leaders. Absolutely. What do you do, though, with people who come into Second City who just have huge egos? like? It must be hard for them as an adjustment process, right? Well, I mean, like, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Uh, but, but like anywhere, so that that's the thing is when they take the classes, they cannot succeed unless they give up on that ego. Right. I mean, they literally will fail the level and not, you know. So it's when, paradoxical. When, that's so paradoxical. Yeah. yeah. So so you need an intense ego to be the person who says, "I'm going to get up and." with no script and be amusing with other people. But you also have to sublimate your need to be right, your need to control things. And there there unlocks the secret of why Second City Talent has been so amazing for years. It is exactly that. It is getting incredibly gifted people in a room and learning the skill of seeding control as a way to enhance the power of the group. Um, and this is this is what what I always tell people is is Second City has one of the most affirming ensemble oriented processes that you'll ever find in any theatrical art form, right. and all we do is create individual stars. I love that. I just so you show that that model works, yes, or it can work. Tell me what doesn't work about it. Yeah, I mean it, it worked from Mike Nichols and Elaine May to Keegan Michael Key and Jason Sudeikis and Tina Fey and Steve Carell. Yeah. So it might not make them a great stand-up comedian, but it makes them a great yeah. improv artist. Well, and I mean, it, what it does is when you think about it, – it, it's not just that we're producing people who are working in the industry. Like Second City trained people own late-night television in America. Right. right I mean, right. That, that's Stephen Colbert, Seth Meyers, the cast of Saturday Night Live. I mean, yeah. it is – you know, that that is – and then down the line, right? these are titans of the industry and they have been for decades. More and more people are learning the art form and applying it to the industry. That's great. We share that with the Improv Olympics of the world and the Annoyance (laughs) Theaters and the Upright Citizens Brigade. Yes, we're all playing in that that wonderful pool. My contention is 
at Second City because we start with all the improv principles, but we do turn it into a very commercial product. That's the difference that we've got is the, the sort of professionalization of it, the commercialization of it gives those performers an incredible boost because they can't just go do this stuff in front of their 50 friends who paid five bucks. Right. They've got to do it in front of, you know, Nancy from Naperville who, you know, mm-hmm. and, and. Well, and what comes out of that then is that when you let go of your idea of what should be funny mm-hmm. and you discover what is funny, you just through following the follower with other members of your ensemble, but also following the follower with the audience. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. That yes. you discover. So that rather than, and it also, I think maybe is the reason why improvisers are certainly marginally more mentally healthy than stand-ups, is that you're not forcing yourself to come up with the thing, discovering it in this moment with everybody else. That's very positive psychology as well. Yeah. All, <laughs> yes, huh? all, all those findings of yeah, well, be, what we know produces well-being in life. So I want to end on this question of what makes uh, great comedy great comedy. I read... So one of the right adult. Well, okay. Well, no, I mean that's a whole other podcast discussion. <laughs> so I'm going I'm to table that. But and I was actually going to ask earlier if there are a lot of political themed things going on at Second City right these days. Completely. I mean, we're, we've co-created a show with Slate Magazine. Right. We have another political review that's out. We're writing a new show right now. But you know, we always have to be careful when we're writing a show during an election because we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what's going to happen, especially right. in this one. So week to week, so we tend to look for the larger themes. So while everyone else is dealing with joke of the moment, that's never what's going to end up in the Second City show. It's going to be the broader thing of like, here's the thing that was really going on for the last year. But one of you guys said that great comedy involves three things, creativity, communication, and collaboration. Mm-hmm. Didn't one of you say that? <laughs> yeah. It's no. Improvisation does. Yeah. So... Um, Comedy's got more stuff. Comedy has more elements. Comedy has more elements to it. Okay, so yeah, so that's great comedy. And then when you talk about, uh, so I think that improv, like as you guys talked throughout this whole interview today, it really combines those three things. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you know, and improv and comedy are two different things, and they are connected, of course, in our world. But what improv is a practice, and it is a, 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 there, there, it's well, a it's pedagogy. A, it's a, well, it's a creativity practice. Yeah. It is a communication practice yep. that reveals truth that creates comedy. So improvisation often creates comedy, but improvisation by itself is not inherently comedic, but it creates comedy because it connects to those things that are true about comedy, authenticity, recognition, and shared social world. Boom. I want to end right there. Okay. <laughs> Thank right. you guys so much for the work you do and for showing me so clearly how uh, how important improv is. Thank you, Scott. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Psychology Podcast with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman. I hope you found this episode just as thought-provoking and interesting as I did. If you'd like to read the show notes for this episode or hear past episodes, you can visit thepsychologypodcast.com.
Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's better, H-E-L-P dot com.